Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. The man behind the counter asked no unnecessary questions or stereotypical questions. He took one glance at me as I entered the door, sized me up quite accurately, and greeted me with a very pleasant, quote, good morning, sir. He then inquired, what shall I show you first, shirts or ties? I said I would like the, the shirts first. He then glanced at the style of shirt I was wearing, asked my size, and began laying out shirts of the very type and color for which I was searching. Without my saying another word, he laid out six different styles and watched to see which one I would pick up first. I looked at each shirt in turn, laid them back on the counter, and the salesman observed that I examined one of the shirts a little more closely than the others, and that I held it a little longer. No sooner had I laid the shirt down than the salesman picked it up and began to explain how it was made. He then went to the tie counter and came back with three very beautiful blue ties of the very type for which I was had been looking. Tied each and held it in front of the shirt, calling attention to the perfect harmony between the colors and the ties of the shirt. He, Before I had been in the store five minutes, I had purchased three shirts and three ties and was on my way with the package under my arm, feeling that here was a store to which I would return when I needed more shirts and ties. I learned afterwards that the merchant who owns that little shop where I had made these purchases pays a monthly rental of $500 for the small store and makes a handsome income from the sale of nothing but shirts, ties, and collars. He would have to go out of business with a fixed charge of $500 a month for rent if it were not for his knowledge of human nature, which enables him to make a very high percentage of sales to all who come into his store. I have often observed women when they were trying on hats and was and have wondered why salespeople did not read the prospective buyer's mind by watching her manner of handling the hats. A woman goes into a store and asks to be shown some hats. The salesperson starts bringing out hats so the prospective buyer starts trying them on. If a hat suits her, even on the slightest sort of way, she will keep it on a few seconds or a few minutes, but she does not like it where she does not like it. She will put it right off her head the moment the salesperson takes her hands off the hat. Finally, when the customer is shown a hat that she likes, she will begin to announce the fact in terms which no well-informed salesman will fail to understand by arranging her hair under the hat or pulling it down on her head to just the angle where she likes it best. And by looking at the hat from the rear and with the aid of a hand mirror, the signs of admiration are unmistakable. Finally, a customer will remove the hat from her head and begin to look at it closely, and she may lay it aside or permit another hat to be tried on her, in which event the clever salesperson will lay aside the hat just removed, and at the opportune time, she will bring it back and ask the customer to try it on again. By careful observation of the customer's likes and dislikes, a clever saleswoman may often sell as many as three or four hats to the same customer at one sitting by merely watching what appeals to the customer and then concentrating the sale on that.
The same rules apply to the sale of other merchandise. The customer will, if closely observed, clearly indicate what is wanted. And if the clue is followed, very rarely will a customer walk out without buying. I believe it is a conservative estimate when I say that fully 75% of the walkouts, as non-purchasing customers are called, are due to the lack of tact showing of merchandise. Last fall, I went to that hat store to purchase a felt hat. It was a busy Saturday afternoon, and I was approached by a young, quote, extra rush hour salesman who had not yet learned how to size people up at a glance. For no good reason whatsoever, the young man pulled down a brown derby and handed it to me. I rather tried it on, tried it to hand it to me. I thought he was trying to be funny and refused to take the hat into my hands, saying to him, in an attempt to return his compliment and be funny in turn, do you tell bedtime stories also? He also looked at me in surprise, but didn't take the cue which I had offered him. If I had not observed the young man more closely than he had observed me and sized him up as an earnest but inexperienced extra, I would have been highly insulted. For if there is anything I hate, it is a derby of any sort, much less a brown derby. One of the regular salesmen happened to see what was going on, walked over and snatched the brown derby out of the young man's hands, and with a smile on his face, intended a sort of sop to me and said, What the hell are you trying to show this gentleman away? That spoiled my fun, and the salesman who had immediately recognized me as a gentleman sold me the first hat he brought out. The customer generally feels complimented when a salesman takes the time to study the customer's personality and lay out merchandise suited to that personality. I went into one of the largest men's clothing stores in New York City a few years ago and asked for a suit, describing exactly what was wanted, but not mentioning the price. The young man, who purported to be a salesman, said he did not believe they carried such a suit, but I happened to see exactly what I wanted hanging on a model and called his attention to the suit. He then made a hit with me by saying, Oh, that one over there? That's a high-priced suit. His reply amused me. It also angered me. So I inquired of the young man what he saw about me, which indicated that I did not come in to purchase a high-priced suit. With embarrassment, he tried to explain. But his explanations were as bad as his original offense, and I started toward the door, muttering something to myself about dumbbells. Before I reached the door, I was met by another salesman who had a sense by the walk I was walked and the expression on my face that I was none too well pleased. The tact well worth remembering, this salesman engaged me in conversation while I was unburdened my woes and then managed to get me back with him and looked at the suit. Before I left the store, I purchased the suit I came in to look at, two others which had not intended purchasing. That was the difference between a salesman and one who drove customers away. Moreover, I later introduced two of my friends to the same salesman and made sizable sales to each of them. I was once walking down Michigan Boulevard in Chicago when my eye was attracted to a beautiful gray suit in the window of a men's store. I had no notion of buying the suit. I was curious to know the price, so I opened the door and without entering, merely pushed my head inside and asked the first man I saw how much the suit in the window was. The following was one of the cleverest bits of sales maneuvering I had ever observed the salesman knew he could not sell me the suit unless I came into the store. So he said, will you not step inside, sir? Well, I find out the price of the suit. 
Of course he knew the price all the time, but that was his way of disarming me of the thought that he intended to try to sell me the suit. Of course I had to be polite as the salesman, so I said, certainly, and walked inside. The salesman said, step right this way, sir, and I'll get you the information for you. In less than two minutes, I found myself standing in front of a case with my coat off, getting ready to try on a coat like the one I had observed in the window. After I was in the coat, which happened to fit almost perfectly, which was no accident thanks to the accurate eyes of an observing salesman, my attention was called to the nice, smooth touch of the material. I rubbed my hand up and down the arm of the coat, as I had been seeing the salesman do while describing the material, and sure enough, it was a very fine piece of material. By this time, I had again asked the price, and when I was told the suit was only $50, I was agreeably surprised, because I had been led to believe that it might have been priced much higher. However, when I first saw the suit in the window, my guess was that it was priced at about $35, and I doubt that I would have paid that much for it if I had not fallen into the hands of a man who knew how to show the suit to the best advantage. If the first coat tried on me had been about two sizes too large or too small, I doubt that any sale would have been made, despite the fact that all the ready-to-wear suits sold in the better stores are altered to fit the customer. I bought that suit on an impulse of the moment, as a psychologist would say, and I am not the only man who buys goods on that same sort of impulse. A single slip on the part of the salesman would have lost him the sale of that suit if he had replied $50. When I asked the price, I would have said thank you and have gone my way without looking at the suit. Later in the season, I purchased two more suits from the same salesman, and if I now lived in Chicago, the chances are that I would buy still other suits from him because he always showed me the suits that were in keeping with my personality. The Marshall Field Store in Chicago gets more merchandise than does any other store of its kind in the country. Moreover, people knowingly pay more at this store and feel better satisfied than if they bought the merchandise at another store for less money. Why is this? Well, there are many reasons, among them the fact that anything purchased at the field store, which is not entirely satisfactory, may be returned in exchange for other merchandise, or the purchase price may be refunded just as the customer wishes. An implied guarantee does not the, an implied guarantee goes with every article sold in the field store. Another reason why people will pay more at the field store is the fact that merchandise is displayed and shown to better advantage than it is at the most other stores. The field window displays are truly works of art, no less than if they were created for the sake of art alone and not merely to sell merchandise. The same is true of the goods displayed in the store. There is harmony and proper grouping of merchandise throughout the field establishment, and this creates an atmosphere, quote, that is more, more, much more than merely an imaginary one. Still, another reason why the field store can get more merchandise than most other merchants is due to the careful selection and supervision of salespeople. One would seldom find a, sale, a person employed in the field store whom would not be willing to accept as a social equal or as a neighbor. Not few men have been acquaintance of girls in the field store who later become their wives. Merchandise because per merchandise purchased in the field store is packed or wrapped more artistically than in common in other stores, which is still another reason why people go out of their way and pay higher prices to trade there.
break break i would like to have a quick word from our sponsor thank you for your time let's get back to the reading While we are on the subject of artistic wrapping of merchandise, I wish to relate the experience of a friend of mine, which will not fail to convey a very definite meaning to those engaged in the business of selling, as it shows how imagination may be even used in wrapping merchandise. The friend, this friend, had a very fine silver cigarette case, which he had carried for years, and which he was very proud because it was a gift from his wife. Constant usage had banged up the case rather badly. It had been bent, dented, and hinged, warped, etc., until he had decided to take it to Caldwell, the jeweler, in Philadelphia, to be repaired. He left the case and asked him to send it to his office when it was ready. About two weeks later, a splendid-looking new delivery wagon with the Caldwell name on it drew up in front of his office, and a nice-looking young man in a neat uniform stepped out with a package that was artistically wrapped and tied with a ribbon-taped string. The package happened to be delivered to my friend on his birthday, and having forgotten about the leaving the cigarette case to be repaired and observing the beauty and size of the package that was handed to him, he naturally imagined that someone had sent him a birthday present. His secretary and other workers in his office gathered around his desk to watch him open up his, quote, present. He cut the ribbon and removed the outer covering. Under this was a covering of tissue paper fastened with a beautiful gold seals bearing the Caldwell initials and trademark. The, this paper was removed, and behold, a most beautiful plush-lined box met his eyes. The box was opened, and after removing the tissue paper packing, there was a cigarette case which he re recognized. After careful examination, as one had left to be repaired, but it did not look like the same case. Thanks to the imagination of the Caldwell manager, Every dent had been carefully straightened out, the hinges had been trued, and the case had been polished and cleaned so it shone as it did when it was first purchased. Simultaneously, a prolonged oh of admiration came from the onlookers, including the owner of the cigarette case, and the bill. Oh, it was plenty, and yet the price charged for the repair did not seem too high. As a matter of fact, everything that had entered into the transaction for the packing of the case with the fine tissue paper cover, the gold seals, the ribbon tape string, the delivery of the package by a neatly uniformed boy from a well-appointed new delivery wagon was based upon careful, ca carefully calculated psychology, which laid the foundation for a high price for the repair. People generally do not complain of high prices, providing the service or embellishment of the merchandise is such as to pave the way for high prices. What people do complain of, and rightly so, is the high prices and, quote, sloppy service. To me, there was a great lesson in this cigarette case incident. And I think there is a lesson in it for any person who makes a business of selling any sort of merchandise. The goods you are selling may actually be worth all you are asking for them. But if you do not carefully study the subjects of advantages, display, and artistic packaging, packing, you may be accused of overcharging your customers. On Broad Street in the city of Philadelphia, there is a fruit shop where who's patronize, who patronize the store are met at the door by a man in uniform who opens the door for them. He does nothing else but merely open the door. But he does it with a smile, even though it will be carefully studied and rehearsed smile, which makes the customer feel welcome even before he gets inside the store. This fruit merchant specializes on a specially prepared baskets of fruit, not just 
outside the store is a big blackboard on which are listed the, sa the sailing dates of the various ocean liners leaving New York City. This merchant caters to people who wished baskets of fruit delivered on board departing boats on which the friends which friends are sailing. If a man's sweetheart or perhaps his wife or a very dear friend happens to be sailing on a certain date, he naturally wants the basket of fruit to purchase for her to be embellished with frills and trimmings. Moreover, he is not necessarily looking for something cheap or even inexpensive. All of which the fruit merchandise capitalizes. He gets from he gets from $10 to $25 for a basket of fruit which could one could purchase just around the corner not more than a block away for a mere 3 to 750. With the exception that the letter ladder would be would not be embellished with the with 75 cents worth of frills which the former contains. The merchant store is a small fair, no larger than the average small fruit stand store, but he pays a rent of at least $15,000 a year for the for the place and makes more money than half a hundred ordinary fruit stands combined, merely because he knows how to display and deliver his wares, so they appeal to the vanity of the buyers. This is but another proof of the value of imagination. The American people, and this means all of them, are not merely the so-called rich, are the most extravagant spenders on earth, but they insist on, quote, class, when it comes to the appearances such as wrapping and delivery and other embellishments which add no real value to the merchandise they buy. The merchant who understands this and has learned how to mix imagination with his merchandise may reap a harvest in return for his knowledge. And a great many are doing it too. The salesman who understands the psychology of proper display, wrapping, delivering merchandise, and who knows how to show his wares to fit the whims and characteristics of his customers can make ordinary merchandise bring fancy prices. And what is more important still, he can do it so and still retain the patrons of his customers more readily than if he sold the same merchandise without the studied appeal and artistic wrapping and delivery service. In a cheap restaurant where coffee is served in heavy, thick cups and the silverware is tarnished or dirty, a ham sandwich is only a ham sandwich. And if the restaurant keeper keeps 15 cents for it, he is doing well, but just across the street, where the coffee is served in dainty thin cups on neatly covered tables by neatly dressed young women, a much smaller ham sandwich will bring a quarter, to say nothing of the cost of the tip to the waitress. The only difference in the sandwiches is merely in appearances. The ham comes from the same butcher and the bread from the same baker, whether purchased from the former or from the latter restaurant. The difference in price is very considerable, but the difference in the merchandise is not the difference of either quality or quantity so much as it is of, quote, atmosphere or appearances. People love to buy appearance or atmosphere, which is merely a more refined way of saying what which P.T. Barnum said about, quote, one being born every minute, <laughs> quote, it is no overstatement of the fact to say that a master of sales, psychology, could go into the average merchant store with a stock of goods worth, let's say, $50,000, and at the very slight additional expense of making the stock bring $60,000 to $75,000. He would do nothing except coach the salespeople 
on the proper showing of the merchandise. After having purchased a small amount of more suitable fixtures, perhaps and repackaged the merchandise in more suitable coverings and boxes. A man's shirt packed one to the box in the right sort of box with a piece of ribbon and a sheet of tissue paper added for embellishment can be made to bring a dollar or a dollar and a half more than the same shirt would have bring without the more artistic package. I know this to be I know this is true, and I have proved it more times than I can recall to convince some skeptical merchant who had not studied the effect of, quote, proper displays. Conversely stated, I have proved many times that the finest shirt made cannot be sold for half its value if it is removed from its box and placed on a bargain counter with inferior-looking inferior shirts, both of which are examples prove that people do not know what they are buying that they go more by appearances than they do on actual analysis of the merchandise they purchase. This is noticeably true in the purchase of automobiles. The American people want and demand a style and appearance of automobiles. What is under the hood or in the rear axle, they do not know and really do not care, as long as the car looks the part. Henry Ford required nearly 20 years of experience to learn the truth of the statement just made and even then, despite all his analytical ability, he only acknowledged the truth when forced to do so by his competitors. If it were not true that people buy, quote, appearances more than they buy, quote, reality, Ford never would have created the new automobile. The car is the finest sort of example of the psychologist who appeal, appeals to the tendency which people have to purchase, quote, appearance. Although, of course, it must be admitted that in this particular example, the real value of the car actually exists. Hmm. That concludes chapter six on imagination. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.